Season one, episode one, Ready Educator One. The VR Podcast, your realm for all things immersion tech in education and business. Prepare to be transported. Here are your hosts, Alex, Stephen, Amanda, and James. It took nine years for Ernest Klein to pull all of his ideas into his first novel, Ready Player One. In June of 2010, Klein sold his novel in a bidding war to what is essentially Random House. The book was published around 14 months later in paperback and hardcover on August 16, 2011. The very same day the audiobook was released, in true nostalgic fashion, Will Wheaton, a.k.a. Wesley Crusher from Star Trek The Next Generation, was the reader. In true Klein fashion, the release was not a typical one. It was an interactive game consisting of a contest not unlike the book Klein had written. First, players had to find the hidden URL in the book that took players to a newly developed Atari 2600 game called Stacks, a nod to Wade Watts, the book's protagonist community. The second was playing a newly developed Facebook game, and the third was setting a world record on one of various retro games. What would the prize be? Sticking to 80s nostalgia, Klein revealed that the competition's grand prize would be a 1981 DeLorean, similar to the one used in Back to the Future. While not a DeLorean, Ready Player One also received prizes in the same year, the Alex and Prometheus Awards. The day after the book rights were sold, the film rights were also sold to Warner Brothers. It would be another six years or so before the book made it to the big screen, but the wait was worth it. Advances in available technology made the film visually spectacular, and its release complements the current state of immersion technology. Hardware companies are releasing virtual, augmented, and mixed reality-ready gear at an exponential rate, while developers are liberated by advanced software like Unity, which just so happens to be free. It has been an interesting ride from the first public commercial VR experiences, or even promises of household VR such as Sega VR, Virtual Boy, and movies like Lawnmower Man in the 80s and 90s. While there was so much hype as I was growing up for VR, it seemed to fade until the smartphone revolution kicked in, primarily because of developers. Now we are seeing VR everywhere there are smartphones. Of course, smartphones are not the only advances in hardware that facilitate VR to consumers. PlayStation VR, Oculus Rift, HTC Vive all have massive followings of their own as gamers utilize these high-level platforms. But there's also another sector where VR has been emerging more and more with the increasing saturation of technology, and that's education. With more schools increasing bandwidth and investing into one-to-one -one programs, it's a breeding ground for immersion technology experiences. With this influx of hardware, software, and experiences, it is inevitable that education will feel the shift and need to be prepared for what comes with such great power, great responsibility. Shout out to Uncle Ben there. Students are hungry to pioneer in the world of VR, but administrators and teachers must consider the effects of its usage, both positive and negative. 
our team discusses the impact VR has on both these fronts, business and education. And it shares insights on what can be expected now and in the future. As for Ready Player One, it certainly will help infuse virtual reality technology in the classroom. We just need to be prepared for it. Now that Ready Player One has hit the theaters, here at the Virtual Reality Podcast, we're going to be focusing on some of the major themes in the movie and how they connect to education and learning. In this episode, we're going to be talking about learning as an adventure and referencing the movie for parallels and examples. Let's jump right into it. What connections can we make to Ready Player One the movie and learning as an adventure? Yeah, I... I, I... For me, I saw it uh, more more than a few times, and I each time I tried to look watch the movie in a different lens. And so, looking at it from an educator standpoint, um, it was kind of difficult for me to separate that from the feeling of nostalgia. And I think that a lot of us felt that nostalgia, uh, especially when it came to and all, in all fairness, spoiler alert, because there will be some things that are we're going to talk about that are some spoilers, um, and. Um, in trying to obtain the third key, um, the, the third challenge was in the movie was playing an Atari 2600. Um, now for those of you who don't, who do not know Atari 2600s were like, it was the turning point of whole, uh, home console gaming. Um, and there were a ton of games that were developed. Um, and one of those was adventure. Uh, and that is one that is prominently displayed in the movie. And the cool thing that I loved about the challenge was that um, it was not necessarily about beating the game because um, even though um, one of the uh, IOI uh, peeps, they finished the game completely, they were still, they cracked through the ice just like everybody else had done. Um, and it, what really was, um, was evident was that it was about finding that Easter egg. It was about the process and about the journey of enjoying the game and it wasn't necessarily about beating the game, but it was about um, what we did in between. And so for me, it ran parallels with something that we see in education is that we tend to focus on just the outcome. Like what's the, what does the final project look like? What do the final scores look like? What do those things look like? And it's not just students. It's students, teachers, administrators, district people, politicians. We're all focused on that end process. But there's enough of us, I think. Um, that really know that that's not necessarily healthy and it's not a good way for us to gauge learning um, that we had to look at the process and what's occurring in between. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it, I draw a similar parallel, James, as well, just in, in that you know, we focus so strongly, like you said, about the testing and getting to that point. But what about those soft skills? What about the process and those lessons that, are, that teachers are attempting to instill into their students, you know, by, be it collaboration, leadership, public speaking skills, you know, all those uh, interdisciplinary skills that, that give students sort of a leg up against their competition, I think are, are very important and often overlooked when it comes down to, again, that test at the end. And I'm curious what, uh, what everyone else has to say about that as well. To piggyback on that, I, I think part of the problem starts with teachers and at the design part, when they start to design these assessments and, and these learning experiences for students, uh, it's been a historical 
problem where teachers make recipes where there's one journey, there's one destination and one way for students to get to that end point. And we have 29, mm -hmm. you know, beautiful hand-drawn turkeys or um, 20 wonky, wonky <laughs> cakes, like we have this recipe. When really with video games, there are a plethora of ways to get to the end. You don't have to play the game the same way. And I think learning experiences should be reflected that way. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because, um, you know, back when these, like when, like these games, like Atari 2600 or even the early, um, arcade games, um, there really was only one way to beat it, um, or one way to achieve the perfect score. Um, and so you can run that parallel too, that now you see more sophisticated game developments coming out, mm -hmm. uh, that there are so many ways to win or to beat the game. I remember back in uh, the early 90s when Street Fighter 2 came out, um, they had difficulties in, um, that you could play the game at to win. And, and if you beat it at the highest level, you got like something different as a reward as beating it. But you also, along the way, depending on what character you were, you learned more about who they were and the process became um, really important. But you also found different ways to beat the game. Um, so I think that that's an important thing for us to take away too, is that um, it is not only should we be looking at differences, but it is different for everybody, whether, whether or not we want to acknowledge it, um, it is different for everyone. And you know, the, the word differentiation gets thrown around so much. Um, and I, I kind of balk at it sometimes, but really it is true. We should be differentiating. We should be learning how um, to take, I guess, some, um, the, the, um, the skills that students are passionate about or things that they're passionate about and let them develop that. And maybe we can integrate those things that we want them to know throughout that process. I posted a YouTube video um, earlier this week that had this young girl, she was nine years old on America's Got Talent, um, that she just blew the judges away. She blew me away. And it got me thinking that, you know, if we find what's, what these students are passionate about and we foster that, it's a, it will be blown away with what they give us in return. Um, and it also made me think about how we are not really taking into account, uh, the things that matter in everyday life when we focus on the little numbers that are on the standardized tests or something like that. I think it comes back to what Steven said about these soft skills. What do we find that's most important? I mean, even colleges, even though they'll say that these numbers are important, the ACT, SAT, stuff like that, um, they're also looking for the intangible things, um, on applications, like what are some things you did that were like non-academic that are important? I mean, even Google is famous for doing things that are not um, not within a box or a confine of, oh, you need to be able to do this, this, and this um, that we can fi figure out on a test uh, that's written down or something like that. We want to know, can you work with other people? Um, can you bring ideas? Those type of things are what we find that companies are most interested in. So. I think you, James, you bring up a good point, especially with Google. So I've got some friends there and some of the interview questions, right? I don't know if they still do this, but are like, for instance, how many baseballs fit inside of a school bus? And in that question, it's not about answering it actually correctly. It's about how did you get to that process or how can you get to that process? That's what they're looking for in a question like that. And so those that are aspiring to, to work for tech companies where, you know, Creativity, problem solving, uh, collaboration, all those qualities are, are important. 
you know, you've got to really think inside the box. And I think that we need to focus more on those skills as teachers, you know, while still trying to meet those metrics of testing. I, I, they're important to a degree. Um, yeah, yeah. Stephen, um, specifically, you know, it's funny you mentioned thinking outside of the box. Uh, I loved in the, in the movie um, when Parzival, I believe is how you say it, said, there's a secret in adventure. You find it by wandering around in a dark room. And that metaphor, mm-hmm. wandering around in a dark room, to me speaks to, um, you know, giving students the ability to find the answer on their own without, without kind of having a conscripted answer necessarily, or maybe giving them a good problem and allowing, allowing for the creativity to come up with a solution or to take a path that might not be the exact same path as everyone else. Um, and just allowing for that that level of creative creativity in the learning process to happen, and I think um, you know al- allowing students to wander around a little bit in a dark room before just feeding them the answer will allow the students to own the material and to deliver better results and ultimately become more confident in their own solutions. Speaking of 21st century skills or soft skills, uh, the movie also embraces critical thinking, collaboration, communication, creativity, those four C's. If we look at the movie in terms of planning up, we look at Wade in the beginning of Parsifal and Artemis, they're working separately. They're not working together on this, this challenge that requires, you know, solving puzzles. And these are individuals who were attempted to solve these riddles and were doing great alone. They were holiday experts. You have uh, IOI who has this corporation that's kind of formed around solving these, these riddles in a, in, in a large group and, and they're falling short because part of what they lack is, is passion. They're, it's, it's a selfish kind of motivation where the others are, are fighting for the, uh, for the oasis and for everybody there and for what it represents. So when they start working together, um, I, I think of terms of students, you have your top performing students. And in my classes, these have been some of the students who haven't wanted to work together with others. Yet when these two come together, they are, are solving more of the puzzles. They're, they're just kicking butt and taking names. What do you, what do you guys think about planning up and collaboration in terms of the movie? Well, what I thought was really interesting is that you see right away that like one of the first things that uh, Parsifal does when he gets in is he contacts H. So you know that while they're not quote clanning up because you know, he also, he says throughout the movie, I'm not, I'm not cleaning up. Um, But he, he does see there's value in befriending somebody based on maybe a skill set that he does not have. It may be H maybe H feels the same way towards uh, Parsifal. And maybe that's why at the beginning he like, he's not um, like, he doesn't see himself as, Oh, I'm not cleaning up. I'm just, I'm with my friend and no Artemis is not my friend. So I'm not going to, you know, interact to that level. But we do see by the end of the, that well the that attempt at the challenge that he says he says Artemis but maybe that's because he recognizes her but I do think that maybe in the world of academia when we see students uh, and we group them as educators do we try to group them 
by um, either like abilities or we try to spread it, spread it across. Um, it does kind of call in the question for me um, whether or not that is beneficial truly to the learning process. I mean, maybe we should be taking into account a more the relationships that those students already have with other students or seeing ways that we can foster relationships um, where some may not have any so that they get, they bring out the most in themselves and the others that are in the group or cleaning up. I, I don't know. It's um, but I thought that it was definitely interesting to see how the, that whole cleaning up process, because by the, by the end of the movie, he is certainly, he's claiming the clan. Um, so there's obviously Absolutely. a transition that happens and, uh, that's what we want. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome in the classroom if we saw kids that not were just doing group work? Because I think that, I mean, any academic setting, you can get any kids to do group work, but to be truly invested with each other in the group to, um, to come to a conclusion or to work, to solve an issue or something like that. I think that's, uh, I think that's, there's something we can take away from that. I would agree. I mean, it actually, it's, it's interesting because the movie, right, it actually differs from the book in the sense that there actually is a rebellion. And sort of when they uh, capture Wade and he wakes up inside the, of the rebellion, those were her exact words, welcome to the re rebellion, Wade. And I think that working as a team gave them so much more opportunity to really not only, not only figure out how to successfully uh, find the egg, but also it brought out a lot of character development. So I don't know if anybody noticed this, but for me, this was actually really, really important. In the beginning, Artemis, right, you can develop your avatar and uh, in any way, shape, or form. In this case, she doesn't really show this birthmark on her avatar in the beginning, right? But as they go through this process of collaborating and working together and finding each oneself with the help of others, you notice in the final battle scene when she comes back and she's about to sort of uh, destroy Nolan Sorrento, there's this hero shot. And it's like one and a half seconds. It's a very long shot. And it's Artemis. And she, her avatar now has a very pronounced birthmark on her right, sort of the right side of her face. And I think that as educators, when we see our kids building up their peers, it's, it's just so inspiring. And th those are the moments that, that really get me and take me back when you see each other, the, the kids themselves building each other up. Mm. Steven, I, I really, I didn't, I didn't notice that moment in the movie where, where her birthmark was, yeah. was so pronounced, but um, I do appreciate that character development. And, you know, when thinking about, you know, that, that group, that the, you know, what they came to be known as, as the high five toward mm -hmm. the end and how, um, you know, really, in, in their case, they were collaborating as problem solvers and they were coming together because they knew that five minds was what it, what, what was, what it was going to take to beat um, to be IOI and to um, save, you know, to save what they were all working towards independently. And they were all doing a great job and, and experts in their own rights, but bringing that all together, um, it kind of really shows you that, you know, when you put together five, you know, five or six people's shared experiences, you know, the sum is much greater um, than the parts. And specifically, um, I love the line at the end of the movie. And again, spoiler alert, um, when, when Wade said, I'm splitting it with my clan, we're going to run things together. That to me was 
you know, that sort of solidification of that collaboration um, and him also sort of passing, you know, one of the maybe sort of um, one of the ethical tests or the moral tests that um, that Halliday had put in in the game um, so that the and I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, exactly how that would have played out if he said, I'm going to sign it over. But it was definitely in the spirit of the type of bond and um, and tying that back to learning. You know, when you do something with a group, you're much prouder of that outcome because usually it ends up being better than something that you could have done on your own. Yeah. I mean, when you look at like, it's not just, and when we talk about like this cleaning up or we're talking about the things we want um, when students work together in um, in a classroom or in an academic environment it's you know we're we're quick to like point out the four c's but i really think that that three of those c's actually are bolstered by collaboration i think through true collaboration the critical thinking communication and creativity they just manifest themselves because they have to um and i think that's something that we definitely saw in the movie and i think that's maybe something that we can pay attention to in classrooms to kind of get the same results that we, that we are looking for, which aren't necessarily the same metrics that are on uh, a summative assessment or anything like that. It may be things on uh, becoming a better person. Well, tacking on the back of that, if you're looking at the problems that they're actually solving, the problems that they're solving in the Oasis actually connects to the problems in the real world. So if, if, we look at, if we look at education, are we giving assignments that students are finding important? Are we contextualizing it in real-world problems and place-based learning? Or are we just giving them an assignment to complete? Well, I think when we connect education and problems that students are solving and using critical thinking, creativity, communication, and collaboration, those four Cs, when, when they're applying these to these problems, they... Uh, it has more weight, they're more authentic, and they're, they're more passionate about it when they see their solutions actually have impact. Uh, oh, I completely agree with that. And, I, and mm -hmm. one of the things that I, that I want to point out about that is for years, you know, people have talked about, like, well, you know, when you look at project-based learning or you look at like the 20% project or something like that, they tend to pick out maybe some problems that could be real world or problems that are real world and they come up with solutions. But the disconnect is those solutions never actually make it out and mm. get some action or some traction. And so I think that this, when we think about like this authentic, these authentic real world issues that we want to solve, I think of, uh, one of the things we have to consider is looking at the solutions that are presented as <laughs> things that can be can be implemented so connecting the students with the implementation is important too okay you're going to come up with a solution now i want you to do it like not just mm -hmm. run simulations but do it let's see what actually happens because i think for them the learning may be greater in that moment than it was in just trying to come up with the 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 problem uh, i don't know and i think that's where the movie delivers you have the five that are working together, they solve these problems and they learn from Halliday's past mistakes. They, they see where he erred and in their solution, when they decide to run the Oasis, they immediately start implementing solutions to um, maybe problems that even Holiday built into the system. 
Yeah, and it's so, interesting to see them. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Amanda. Oh, no, I, I was just like the Tuesdays and Thursdays off and um, running it with your friends. Uh, I know Holiday cut out his his best friend early on and yeah. uh, Wade, Wade made it a, a huge thing not to repeat that mistake that things are better, you know, when you when you do them with friends, with peers. That's exactly that's what I was going to I was going to was about uh, was about the the friendship between Aug and uh, Halliday because uh, it's it's maybe not so much in the book because uh, but definitely in the movie you got the impression that Halliday was very remorseful of of kind of pushing Aug out um, and they and even at the end when Wade he basically comes out and says that that um, that his Halliday's uh, his greatest mistake or his biggest regret was pushing Aug out. Now, I think that um, that is really important to think about that these individuals were able to learn from past mistakes because that's not natural for us as individuals because we don't have that, we don't have enough empathy uh, intrinsically to allow us to learn from others' mistakes uh, just natively. We can learn it. We can, that's a learned behavior we can do, but it's very difficult, especially at early ages. So I think that coming back to the idea of working together, solving these problems, and they're, they're having a shared experience with solving these problems, maybe it developed more empathy and maybe that empathy is what allowed them to solve the ultimate, the ultimate issue. Um, so I'm not sure necessarily where that, that comes in, but I think that that definitely plays a part. And maybe that um, looking at those skills that we want students to have, like empathy or something like that, can actually help us to solve those problems greater and kind of transfer that knowledge that, okay, there's problems in this, this virtual space or whatever, and now how can we solve those problems in the real world? Um, it's almost like it's a, a, maybe a laboratory-type experience or something like that. Well, let's look at let's look at how they were actually also solving problems, right? So, if you look at the the Halliday journals, there were these recreations in you know lifelike uh, representation that you could fast forward, zoom in, rewind, etc. Right? How are we able to take the technologies that we have available to us today, you know, virtual reality, and increase engagement or empathy in the classroom with with our children? I'm I'm curious. Ooh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, and uh, me and Amanda have had this conversation before about um, the the idea of archiving or the artifacts we create, um, and maybe I'll let Amanda talk more about that one about about the idea of memories and being able to go back and play, kind of like what we saw in those archives. Well, what we talked about was about building uh, a history in VR like recording 360 degree lessons and, and creating an archive of learning experiences that students could go back and be completely immersed in. And I'm not talking about like Tom Cruise and, or Tom uh, Hanks and Emma Watson's like the circle where we record every minute of every second, <laughs> but you know, to a creepy level, um, more of a didactic archiving, like when his history is happening or, when we're, we're teaching something 
using 360 degree video and being able to have that on demand is such a powerful way for for students to to learn and for teachers to also document learning and to open up classrooms beyond walls. I mean, if you if you have a headset or have access to the content, you could really walk into any professor's classroom anywhere in the world. That's pretty powerful, constantly being able to work and learn from the best and the students who are in that room. Now, that is kind of what's going on already with blended learning and flipped classrooms and online classes, but it's like that on steroids. Yeah, I, I love the fact that VR can also address some of the social emotional learning, uh, you know, mm. hurdles that we might encounter, right? So take, for example, uh, students that are distracted by others, maybe ones that are not, uh, that are typically intimidated to speak, right? It sort of has the opportunity, VR sort of has the opportunity to actually level that playing field for learners and for contributors, because in the Oasis, Oasis public school system, right, all of the emotion and expression and all that is, is turned off. And so as the teacher is teaching, the kids are supposedly in their headsets, you know, listening, but the teacher's then not distracted by a kid picking his nose or, you know, looking at another kid or chatting up another kid or looking at their phone. Right. So I think there's a lot of benefits that we can, can get just from a logistical standpoint uh, out of virtual reality. I, I would, I would say so too, that the, hmm. that when we, when we think about today, because I'm my background is in social studies, so I'm uh, I'm a history nerd. I think about the ability for us, what it would have been like in you know if we were able to archive two thousand years ago, the way that we can archive now. Mm-hmm. Like, what would that look like? How how powerful would that be? Now, granted, it would take away some of the illusion or the critical thinking it takes to determine how something happened or something like that. But I think it's really important for uh, us to experience those things. So being able to archive in such a way that we can go back and experience that maybe in a, a safe and secure environment um, that leads to those, those things like for like from an SEL standpoint mm. that they're comfortable with going and experiencing that because they're not really there. And maybe they take solace in knowing that, Oh, I'm not really here, but I am experiencing this to a, a level of safety that I think is appropriate. As and, I can, and I can review this as many times as I would like at my own pace in the comfort of my own space. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you come back and listen to future episodes. We also want you, yes you, to join in on the conversation. Use hashtag VRPodcast to ask questions or comment on VR, immersion technology, or even about the virtual reality podcast itself. Want to hear more or connect with us? Subscribe to the podcast and find us on social media at The VR Podcast.